Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. And then say, uh, sincerely or with, in Christ, Jonathan, right? Paul and the ancient writers seem to do all of this in reverse. First, he says, I, hey, this is Paul. Here's the stuff. Oh, and greetings to 27 people last week and a couple this week. This week, it's more the people who are alongside him that are, are writing the letter along with him. And so he's giving his greetings and his final acknowledgments. And, you know, I admit, we don't write a whole lot of letters these days. I, I do a few. I do birthdays. Hopefully, if you guys have put your birthday in the church, you should get a note from me because I care. And I've got people around me that remind me of these things because I'm not good at it at all. Uh, but I, I don't write a whole lot of letters. Most of us are call and text. A lot of us just prefer text now, right? Like if you call me, I'm like, just text me, man. I don't know. This must be really serious, right? And if you leave me a voicemail, I know things are really going in, interesting in, in your life. But I know this much. If I'm going to call uh, my parents, let's just say, uh, and I need advice, I know which one to call for what type of advice I'm looking for, all right? If I just need someone uh, to give me the cold, hard facts, and it's certainly out of love, but I know there's going to be almost no fluff, and that's normally my style anyway, I need to call my dad. He's, it's not going to be a whole lot of sweetness. It's just going to be straight up, and I'm good with that, all right? Not everybody's good with that. That's good for me. But if I just need someone to tell me that I'm, I'm, I'm a good person, I'm going to be okay, uh, the life is not ending, I call my mother, right? I, if I want all the sweetness, like my parents are polar opposite when it comes to how they interact with me. And so I hope, though, that you have someone like that in your life, somebody that will maybe do all of those things in one. That's really what we see from Paul is the whole picture, the hard, some, a couple of hard pieces of advice today, but also the love and the care and the encouragement, the whole shebang. If you don't, though, here's the good news. We've got it right here. <laughs> the gospel is that good news every day, all the time, over and over and over again. So even if you don't have somebody in your life, you can just call to get great advice. There's people all throughout the scripture that can guide you. And there's some people in this church, maybe you just haven't made some friends here yet. There's some people in here I know will just tell you the truth with little fluff. So if you're looking for that, there's a few of them in here. Uh, and there's some sweet folks in here too. You could probably just look around and tell by their, their very expression which one of those they are. And maybe they're both, but... I'm more the first, in case you're wondering, up here, you know, I got, I try to put a smile on, and I am really trying to be nice, right? But my general disposition is just give you what it is with little fluff. Um, so the Lord's working on that. Uh, there, some sweetness should apply. In Romans 16, where we are today, finishing up this letter, we see Paul closing it down with a final word, and we're calling this gospel guidance, greetings, and glory. Because we love you, look at all those G's. I think you can remember it. Guidance, greetings, and glory. And as he's closing, he's, he's really, in the last final thoughts, showing us once more how to apply the gospel in our relationships. How to apply it in everyday living over and over and over again. Because what use is the gospel unless we can apply it in every avenue, in every relationship? And so he's reminding us of that now. So we should be asking that question, and it's a question I hope we can answer together today, and that is, how can we apply the gospel that we've been reading about for four years together and studying together, how can we apply that to our relationships? I believe the text is going to give three very clear ways to apply this gospel. So let's finish the letter, Romans 16, 17 to the end. He says, 
I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and with flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you, listen to this, I want you to be wise as to what is good and be innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, he greets you. So, so do Lucius and Jason and Sospater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. I'm going to help you understand that in a moment. Don't worry. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, he greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus, he greets you. Listen to this doxology, everyone. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Wonderful doxology there to finish. So how do we apply it? What do we do with this little nugget of Scripture? How do we apply this gospel in our relationships? Well, the first one is rather clear in the first few verses, and that is follow godly guidance on troublemakers and false teachers. If you've been alive for any period of time, you've probably recognized that everywhere you go there are troublemakers. Um, you, in the church, I got news for you. If it's your first time here with us, there's a chance there's troublemakers in our midst. They tend to loom about. They tend to like church. It's a place where a lot of people can uh, feel like they have power in spite of the truth that all, the power is all in Christ Jesus. None of us have some special power. We have, we have the Lord Christ. We have Jesus himself. And, but sometimes they'll flock to this place because... Fair enough, we're supposed to be welcoming and kind. But it's interesting how Paul argues it here. The godly guidance as we see here is watch out. I appeal to you, Church of Rome. And it doesn't seem he's got a specific here. I want you you to remember something about Paul here. He has not, he's not gone to Rome yet. He's heard some stories, probably from Priscilla and Aquila, some of his friends who have been in Rome. He's not met these people yet. He's heard a few of them. He may have met some of them on the journey. So this piece, this appeal, is, is generic. And it's generic for us today, too. He's saying, look, everywhere I've gone, and Paul's already made several travels at this point, every church I've visited, every group of Christians I've been around, there's always wolves. I always find them. That's what he's saying. He's, I haven't met you guys yet in Rome, but here's what I already know. In my pastoral experience, there's troublemakers. They're there. If they're not there yet, they're coming soon. If you're doing, I think this is just the way it is. If you're doing godly work, if you're following Christ with all your your life and the church does that as as a group, wolves show up. And it's not the end of the world. It's just a thing to navigate. It's a thing for us to wrestle together. And sometimes what we'll find is these people just don't know Jesus yet. And once they come to Christ, the trouble somewhat 
it, it goes down somewhat. <laughs> We've had people like this at both of our campuses. And over time, God softens their heart. And be, they begin to follow Him and obedience to Him. That's the very careful lesson of this is watch out for them. He says, there's those who create this. This is the final appeal he's making. Look, I've traveled a lot. There's people that like division and they like obstacles. Division is this word here that has to do with dissension. These are people that would like to split parties, right? They want to get a team together that breaks things up. And maybe they don't even know they're this way yet. But over time, we can start to see it. And I found, and look, I'm young in my ministry, but I'm learning this lesson is if the person can be approachable, if they're willing to listen, if they're willing to say, you know what, I see your point of view. I see that maybe what I'm doing is just disunified. That's a person who can grow. That's a person who can see the error of their ways. But then there's others who are just far from God and they're a distraction. I'm praying that's not you today, but even if it is you today, my friend, maybe this word can soften your heart today. That there are some who create obstacles. The word here, obstacle, is scandalon. It's the word where we get scandalous. It's the idea of setting a trap so that other people would stumble, that you would throw sticks in the, in the road so that they would trip on them. It's scandalous. Now, the advice he gives here is unique. And this is how I, I'm pretty sure, this, this is how I'm, I'm even more clear that this is something generic for the church. Look what he tells people to do. He says in verse 17, and this is an imperative verb, this is a command, he says avoid. Avoid them. That's interesting because to Timothy and to Titus and some of these others who are his disciples and to the church leaders, he says, reprove, rebuke, teach, instruct. But to the church at large, he says, maybe avoid them. They're up to no good. Maybe bring it to the leadership. That might be a possibility, although it's not what he said here. He simply said avoid. And the first step in order to avoid is to, to catch it. So that's why he says, watch out. That means we've got to have our eyes open. That, I don't want us to be like a group of, of private investigators in the church. That's really not the goal of church ministry. But here's what I, what I think you should do, my friends. When you hear a piece of information that's negative, consider it. Watch out for it and go, okay, is it true? Is it edifying? What is it doing to me and my heart? Listen to the Holy Spirit when you hear gossip-type things. Listen to the Holy Spirit when you hear someone bad-mouthing the ministry to which you're involved. Maybe it's prophetic. I don't want to limit that. There's a possibility that people see an issue with how we're doing ministry and we can grow from it. But I found that those people will come to me personally and help me see and go, okay, you're, I think you're right. We could do better at that. It's all about improvement and maturing and growing. But if they're behind the scenes creating and stirring up trouble, I'm afraid of that. That makes me watch out. That makes me, for me as a leader, and some of you are leaders, it makes me all right, i got to go in and I've got to deal. But for the church, he says, avoid them. Avoid them. Watch out for them. Why? Because they're in it for their own bellies. This word appetites in verse 8 is the belly. <laughs> they're in it to feed their tummies. They're, they're up to this because for some reason it makes them feel good. It makes them fill up. And the way in which they get into this position is with smooth talk and flattery. God ain't a big fan of smooth talk, right? 
There's this unique, and, and if you look at just the word and unpack it, it literally just means fair speaking or good speaking. But it also has this secondary meaning of having the appearance of sincerity. It has the appearance of it. It simulates truth, but it's not true. That's the idea of the smooth talk. This is, as one commentator, an ancient guy named Matthew Poole, he's writing several hundred years ago, he says, Satan insinuated into Eve by pretending that he wished her good. So these seducers pretend they aim at nothing but the good and benefit of those with whom they have to do. This is the sense of this smooth talk. That's what the serpent did in the garden is... Are you sure God said? Are, because it looks yummy. <laughs> the fruit looks good to eat. And aren't, don't you think God just said that because you, it would make you like God? That's smooth talk and flattery. Like you could be like God. Be very hesitant, my friends, when somebody in your life is like, Oh, this, this will make you like God. They might not say it that way. That's a little odd. But this will make you this will make you rich and quick. This will make you better than your friends. This will like anytime somebody tries to come at me with a ploy of quick and easy money, I can't help but have Solomon reading it just ringing him out. Beware of quick and easy money, he says in the Proverbs. Every time I get some get rich scheme, I'm like, I just doubt it. I just maybe, but I'm probably not gonna go that route. I'd rather take it a long and hard road. Because there's a chance that's the right road. There's a better chance. Not that I couldn't. And you know, I, do what you will, my friends. I just don't think God's all that interested in my wealth. <laughs> he's, he, he wants to take care of me for sure. And he's, he's done that again and again and again. I never lack. I have what I need. But does he care so much about me being like on the next great vacation? I just don't think he cares all that much about that for me. He does want me to look more like Christ Jesus. And a lot of times for me personally, it means breaking down some materialistic problems and things like that. I have to realize again and again, in fact, instead of, hey, you can be like God, the words of God are, hey, I want to mold you and make you more like my son Jesus. And it's going to take time. It's a process. And you're a mess. But I want to clean it up. Totally different. It's not a quick thing where I just take a bite of a piece of fruit. That's the smooth talk there of the evil one, and he's still doing this. He's not stopped. Uh, sometimes if you read your word and think, oh, look at all this wild stuff that's going on in the Old Testament, even in the New, but I'm not seeing that so much now. Look, my friends, it is still happening. The whispering in your ear about how you're not enough and, and about how this walk with Christ is not going to satisfy and all of those negative voices, don't you think that the evil one is still in, in the business of smooth talk? And then flattery. Flattery. This one used to really work on me, y'all, because I have, I have struggled with my pride throughout my life. And so if someone would lift me up and make my head bigger, I was like, I like the things you're saying to me right now. Keep saying those things to me. And it would lead me astray. And there's people like this maybe in your life already that their objective is to flatter you so that they can guide you down a road you don't wish to be on. Then lift you up so that they could tear you down. 
And by that, in verse 18, they deceive. They deceive the naive. And I don't want to be the naive. I don't know about you. I don't want to, this word means to lack maturity or experience. Instead, Paul says, here's what I want. And I'm rejoicing in this, he says. Look, this is generic. In fact, he says, I haven't heard this about you. I'm not, I'm not rebuking you at all, church in Rome. I'm not rebuking you at all, Eastgate Church. Instead, what I'm saying is I rejoice in the obedience I've already seen. And I just want you to know something. I desire something for you that I hope you will live into. And that is that you would be wise to the things that are righteous. That you would know them. This is, this is really a, a, a pro and a negative side by side in verse 19. Sophos is the word wisdom here that you would be skilled. You would be learn, learned in the things that are good. That means you've got to be in them. You've got to be dealing with them. Like I'm in my word a lot. I'm in prayer a lot. I'm studying the scriptures. I'm listening to God in prayer. I'm wise to the things of God. But I'm innocent to the things of evil. I'm innocent to him. That means, literally, it means without any mixture of evil. It means simple. It means, I have no real awareness of this. I feel like I used to get picked on about this some, church. I'll just let you know. I feel like I used to get picked on because I know very, very little about different alcohols and stuff. I I know very, very little about it. And in college, just so you know, I went to East Carolina University. And some of you know what that meant back in the day. All right? Everybody was a whiz at alcohol at East Carolina University, all right? Just to get picked on about this. But this verse reminds me of something that's true. I I can be innocent to things of of the world, like drunkenness and the chaos of downtown ECU in those days. It's fine that I had no clue what was going on. It's totally fine that I haven't dabbled in every little thing. In fact, I'm innocent to so much. And I used to look at that and go, well, how... How will that affect my witness? Will I really be able to reach people? I'm convinced of something, church, and deal with this however you want. I don't think I have to do crack to reach a crackhead. I just don't think I do. That came to me on the spot. It's not in my notes. Judge me for how it is. I'm innocent of a lot of these things, and that's great. The Scripture says go for that. Like We don't have to dabble in things so that we might bear witness. The power of God is enough. I don't have to have personal experience with every struggle to be a voice of reason. Romans uh, 16, 19, in the Phillips version, it says this. I love this. It says, I want to see you experts in good and not even beginners in evil. Not even beginners. It reminds me, I think Paul is really reiterating a principle from Christ. Matthew 10, Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Wise and innocent. And then he says something wild. And I don't know if y'all caught this in verse 20. This one like blew me up this week in my study. He says in verse 20, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. There is so much about that sentence that exploded in my brain. Like, okay, that sounds awesome. I don't know if that's future or if that's already happening. I'll just let you know I think it's both. It's already, not yet. But he says the God of peace will crush. That's odd. Normally, we think peace and we think no crushing, all right? If it's peaceful, there's not people getting stomped on, right? But that's the very thing that Paul is trying to explain here. Look what what God did. Look at the peaceful endeavor that crushed Satan's head. It wasn't what what he expected, and it wasn't what people even expected. The The God of peace sent his son Jesus to die. What a wonderful, wonderful Messiah. And what a... What a suffering servant. This thing that the people of God didn't expect and certainly 
The evil one didn't. And that was the way of peace that crushed not only Satan's plans, but death itself. What in the world? That's so amazing. That Christ Jesus would die for us. The gospel on display here, that's how he did it. He defeated death by his own death and brought peace. The grace of Jesus on display as he puts at the end of that. The grace of our Lord Jesus then be with you. Follow godly guidance on troublemakers and false teachers. Now, I could go through all, all throughout Scripture to deal with this. Proverbs 16, it says, A troublemaker plants seeds of strife. Gossip separates the best of friends. Matthew 7, it says, Watch out for false teachers. They come to you dressed as if they were sheep, and on the inside they are hungry wolves. So avoid them. This is what Paul says to Titus. If people are causing divisions among you, give a first and a second warning. After that, have nothing more to do with them. For people like that have turned away from the truth and their own sins condemn them. Avoid them. Watch out for them. Leaders, rebuke them. Give them warnings. And if they won't, have nothing more to do with them, it says. It's interesting that this is the way we should deal. It's what Scripture says. It's, it's for this reason, I think. And this is, this is an illustration that I admit. I, I thought of it this week, and I know it's, it's poignant for a great, a great many of you. But this thing that we call cancer, right? Uh, some of our brothers and sisters are dealing with this. We've got recent news from some of our members at, at our Wilson campus that just got diagnosed with cancer. It's like it's happening a lot. We're seeing it a lot right now, and I don't know if... I'm convinced that God trusts us with seasons of trouble uh, so that he might be glorified, so that we might grow. I don't know always what his end state is. In fact, I'm not sure we'll always know all the details. Perhaps in glory we'll go, okay, I get that. Or maybe towards the end of our life we'll really understand it. But this thing, this cancer is, is difficult. And the reason it's difficult is because it looks, <laughs> the cells look right. This is why the body really can't defend itself against cancer. I looked this up this week. It's a, it's a disease in which abnormal cells divide uncontrollably and destroy body tissue. And the body's immune system can't fight off these types of diseases because it is unable to recognize it. The, the, these cancer cells consist of the patient's very own DNA. So the body's immune system recognizes it as natural. So it won't fight it. And it just wins. That's why we have to introduce external things that are very painful and very time-consuming and very difficult on the body in order to reverse the process or at least stop it and halt it. This is, this is the nature of the troublemakers and the false teachers too. This is what Paul is speaking of, that there are wolves in the midst and the reason it's so hard on the people of God is because they look right. There are abnormal cells that are divisive, but they look like us. And so that's why we watch out and we're careful and we pay attention. So I want to end that section by giving you a couple things from, from Pastor Chuck Swindoll. I don't know if you guys hang out with him some. I like to listen to his stuff and read some of his books. But I really liked his thoughts on the end of Romans here. He says, here are four questions for every church member to be trained to ask themselves. These are filters, if you were. So when you get information from your brothers and sisters, filter it this way. Here's the first question. Does what I'm hearing agree with Scripture? Does what I'm hearing, does it agree with Scripture? Number two, does what I'm hearing honor my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? 
Okay. Number three, does what I'm hearing help me become more godly? Number four, does what I'm hearing cause me to think more highly of my fellow believers? Those are four really good questions. And when you hear gossip or, or whatever, you hear, you hear negative information from others, read them through that filter and go, okay, well, it didn't even pass number one. It didn't even pass the Scripture test. It didn't get past the sniff test, much less the Scripture test. So this is what Paul's encouraging us to do, that we would have a filter that we would go, wait a minute, this is not edifying to the body of believers. I guess the big question is, church, Christian, do you care more about the kingdom of God or your own itching ears? Because let's just be honest, we love the negative press. We love the news. If it wasn't true, the news would have already gone out of business because all they share with us is negative, bad, negative, bad. So people have itching ears. There's no doubt about it. But are we going to be, as believers, are we going to stick up for truth and want what's best for God's church? I don't care so much about appeasing my own brain. I want to know, does this benefit the people of God and the kingdom of God and His church? If so, then maybe this information is useful. Otherwise, toss it. <laughs> toss it. Here's number two. This is somewhat like last week, but I want to make a note of it. Offer a heartfelt greeting to fellow believers in the Lord. This one's a little different than last week because these are his compatriots. These are the people who are alongside him helping Paul do the work. It's kind of like right in the middle as he's finishing up this letter. If you've ever been on the phone, this happens to me at my parents' house a lot. Especially, it'll probably happen this coming week. My Uncle Barry or my Aunt Sissy, somebody's going to call in. And my dad's just going to go around with the front phone. Hey, it's your, it's your Uncle Barry. I'm like, hey, what's up? What's up? And all of us will do that. There'll be like 10, 12 different people going, hey, say hello. I think that's, that's what Paul's doing right here at the end of this letter. He's like, okay, okay. We're, we're finishing up the letter. Timothy, you, you've been with me on this journey. We've been, we've been processing this stuff together that we're going to send to the Roman church. Hey, you greet him. So Timothy, this is, this is the Timothy of 1 and 2 Timothy. This is the Timothy he puts in charge of the church of Ephesus. And then he says, Lucius, probably the prophet that we see read in Acts chapter 13, if you want to go find out more about Lucius. There's Jason. Jason shows up. He's this probably most likely the same Jason out of Acts 17. Then you've got Sospiter. That's a cool word. You can use that one. I've not seen any Sospiters at all. With y'all having kids, bam, you've got a unique name. It's the same one most likely that's there in Berea in Acts chapter 20. So these are guys that have been on the journey with Paul. You see them in the story. And then there's this one in verse 22 that some scholars look at it and go, well, Romans is a mess, right? Here, right at the letter. He even admits that he didn't write it. Oh my goodness gracious. Look at Acts, or look at Romans 16, verse 22. Paul admits he didn't even write the letter. Okay. Well, that's looking at it with very uneducated eyes. Uh, and, and a bias, if you will, that this can't be true. I'll admit this, I come to a bias, I come to the Bible with this bias, I believe it is true. I admit that is a bias, however, but nevertheless, it's proved itself to me again and again. I come to it going, okay, that verse is odd, but I know it's true, what does it mean? Well, it's really not that difficult, actually, because the practice in ancient times was to have someone they called an amanuensis. If you can learn that, you'll sound smart with your friends later, all right? An amanuensis, all right? This is a scribe. This is a, a word for someone who takes the notes 
of another. Here's what I, here's what I envision. 16 chapters of Romans. This probably took some time. And the Holy Spirit of God is speaking through Paul. And Paul, maybe Paul is, he's chilling out on a couch somewhere. Maybe he's eating some grapes. <laughs> listening to the Lord speak and just airing it out. And here's Tertius over here going, what was that? What would you just say? Okay, okay. And Paul's just eyes closed perhaps. That's what I see in my head. He's just on the side listening to God. Write this, write this. And that's what we see. And it's not that uncommon. It's not that weird. The Bible's one of the only books that people judge through this scope of. It can't be true. And yet so much of our ancient writing is written this way by people who were scribing it. In fact, a lot of ancient religious texts are written this way. A lot of them. And people don't refute them the same way they refute the Bible. Now I get that. It's because if this thing's true, then it's life-changing. And so I get it. I get why they look at it with a microscope. But this one doesn't bother me. This is what's happening here. I love what one writer says of this. This, this, is, this is Ellicott when writing. He says, we have, what we have here are the thoughts and words of the apostle as they came warm from his own mind. As they came warm. That means as they came off his lips, Tertius writes them. And we have Gaius here in 23. He's the one mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1.14 where Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Now, we'd have to get into Corinthians as to why he said that. But he baptized Crispus and Gaius, this Gaius of Corinth. And then we have Erastus. You could pop up this image. Some of you think I'm weird. I don't like to leave a single name unpacked. It's just how I roll. I think they're important. They're in the Bible for a reason. This is hard to read, I'm sure, because it's in Latin. But what you have here is the name Erastus. It literally says here, Erastus, the city magistrate, laid this at his own expense. That means this city manager, there is evidence of biblical stuff, archaeology, right here in the city of Corinth in modern day. This is a modern picture of this same, most likely the same Erastus who was writing here and a friend of Paul's. Acts 19 says of this, it says, Having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So this, this man's been running with him. He's probably a, a helpful co-worker in the ministry. Seems to have some wealth, probably helps fund the ministry. And then there's Cordus. Most likely a slave name here in verse 23. Cordus, just so you know, there's nothing real great about this name. That name means fourth. And if he's a slave, he's probably one of four or four of whoever knows how many. It was, there's Primus, there's Secondus, there's Tertius, who we mentioned earlier. His name just means third. They weren't really sophisticated with these names. Hey, he's the fourth. Let's name him four. Possibly because he's a slave, born into slavery, but now a freed man and a brother of Paul. Wonderful. So what do we do with that? Why is this sucker in the, in the middle? Why is this little nugget smack in the middle of this? I, I think, again, it's, it's an opportunity for us to commend and to greet those who are with us. There's this interesting thing that we do when we're on a journey, when we're doing a great work, is we don't recognize the people that are shouldering the ministry right beside us. Like, if you've got really hard work in your life, outside of church, like, just if you're doing hard work, it's funny how often you'll... If someone new comes to the table, you're like, oh my gosh, bless you. But we forget poor Samwise Gamgee who was on the whole journey with you. This is what Paul's doing. I don't want to miss this piece of the letters. Like these guys have been suffering with me. And they want to they send your, their greetings too. 
Let's not skip commendations. Let's not skip, skip what he says in Romans 16, 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss or a holy hug. Whatever You do your version, holy fist bump. Give credit. Give kudos. If you've, been ever, if you've ever been a part of a corporation or a group of people that never give commendations, it is sapping. It is draining. But Paul and these ministers, these apostles of old, they take careful time. To reach out to each other, give some pats on the back, give some kudos. There's some people in this church, y'all, that we wouldn't be here right now if they weren't on the journey. And I'll probably miss a few of you, but Christy, y'all know Christy. She's up here. She's been up here on this stage with me since day one. And we've done some crazy worship sets together. Um, We've done some... Some hard things together. John's pretty much been there since day one. He tried to just visit, and I put him to work, I think, the second time he showed up. <laughs> Jacob, you've been with us me forever. Some of you, Peggy. Peggy, you're the reason that so many people are here at all. You and, and Brother Stanley is with the Lord Jesus now. Um, you're, she's the reason you came at all. And so, Monica, you've been with me so, most of the time he's been there. I think he roped you into this. I'm so sorry. <laughs> of course, my wife. Um, Lots of you, lots of you have been, the moors came on like right as we moved in the building, which I, I get that, like you missed the <laughs> desert. Um, yeah, you did a lot of, the moors were influential when we got here. Um, yeah, there's so many people, I could look around the room. I don't want to miss that, I don't want to mess that up. There's people that have really, the reason we have a church is not because of me. It's because of Christ first, but it's a, the shouldering of so many people. I'm very thankful for you, and people matter to God. That's why they're in the letter. That's why there was 27 last week. That's why there's a handful this week, because people, the names matter. God's written your name, my friend, in the book of life. Your name matters to God. In the millions and billions of people throughout centuries and centuries, your name matters. That's awesome. Here's the third. Here's the third. Give God the glory for the gospel through Jesus Christ. Give God the glory for the gospel through Jesus Christ. He ends this letter with this wonderful doxology. Let's not miss it. And it's really a summary, a a wonderful summary of of what he's written in 16 chapters. He says, "I, I want you to know that God is able to strengthen. He is able. He can do it. He will do it if you'll allow him to do it in your life. He is able to strengthen you. He, he then gives character traits, several of them. In verse 20, he says, God of peace and God of grace. Here he says, able to strengthen. He's eternal. He's the only wise. And then you'll notice he goes bam, bam, bam with these according tos. There's three of them right here in verses 25 and 26. Here is how God is able to strengthen you. Here are the three ways. First, through the doctrine, the gospel doctrine. That's really referring to early in Romans 2 through 8. This mystery of God's righteousness, that's Romans 9 through 11. This gospel manifested. Do you see these words? It all points back to Romans chapter 1, where Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul says, according to my gospel and preaching and revelation and the prophetic writings, we can be strengthened in the Holy Spirit of God knowing that these things are true. 
and that God is with us and for us. I love that he says in verse 25, my gospel. Now again, here's a spot where people would look in and go, well, here's Paul saying this is just his word. But I feel like Paul in this, this is what one writer says about it. Paul calls it my gospel, not to claim authorship, but to claim ownership. We'd, be do, we'd do well, my friends, to say it was my gospel. I'm afraid some of us come to church and we think it's a gospel. That's one thing. Maybe we even think it's the gospel. We're getting closer to truth. But is it my gospel? What Paul is saying is, I've made the lifelong decision that what Jesus did is for me. The cross of Christ, the salvation from sin, the grace given, the preaching, the called life. I made the decision that's mine. And not everyone does that. That's what Paul's saying here. He's not saying these are my words and mine alone. No, he's saying this gospel word, it came to me on the road to Damascus. I was running from God. I was persecuting his people. And the gospel showed up at my doorstep. And I said, yes. And that's the question for you and I today. Is this gospel the gospel? It's my parents' gospel. Or is it my gospel? That's a life-altering decision. Where you, where you say, you know what? It's not enough for me that this is some truth that lingers out here. I've made the decision. It impacts my life. And it guides my steps. He says, my gospel. And the preaching to which I've heard. And now the preaching to which now I proclaim. And Paul's really clear about this. His gospel has been true throughout. In fact, in another place he says, I, I boast in nothing else. I proclaim nothing else but Christ crucified. That is the gospel. According to the scriptures. Jesus Christ died for us. He was buried and resurrected according to the Scriptures. That's what Paul says. And he's, this is this wonderful news. And we often miss this as a church. This mystery is revealed. I admit something to you. I think I would have been one of these big heads in the first century going, who is this Jesus, right? Maybe Pharisaic even. I worry about who I may have been in the first century. I'm thankful that I've got the mystery revealed. That I don't have to go, wow, who is this? What is this Messiah? What is he talking about? And to have missed that. What glory. He says, this is able to strengthen you, my friends, that you can look in and see that it's occurred and know that it's true and the Holy Spirit is, is now active and, and, and moving in your life. This is the revelation of the mystery. These people in the first century didn't know it and that's part of the joy of Paul's ministry. It's like going from town to town saying, you guys... You may have heard some of this stuff, but it's happened. I don't know if we've lost touch with the good news, lost touch with that gospel word, but this is still true, that we can go cubicle, cubicle to cubicle at our workplace. We can go door to door in our neighborhoods and say, I know y'all have heard some stuff, but I don't, know if you, I don't know if you've got it yet. This Jesus, he's, he's been revealed. And he's changed my life. The, the good news of the gospel, he says, this is able to strengthen you. This is the idea now that the fullness of Christ, which they couldn't have seen in Old Testament times. They got snippets of it. Paul is saying they didn't get that. It's almost like it came veiled. There's a covering and they could see in, in part, but now beginning to see in, in whole and in glory, my friends, we will see it in totality, what Christ has done and who he is. This revelation is occurring. And it's being made known. 
He finishes up in verses 26 and 27 by saying he's the eternal God. He's the only wise. And earlier he says be wise. So in order for us to do that, we have to come to the, to the only wise. Same word is used, sophos. If you intend to be wise, my friends, and you're looking for it in places other than here, you're not going to find it. It's not there. There's knowledge. There's, there's learning, absolutely. But wisdom for eternal things is here. Wisdom. And glory in verse 27. And so because of this, we've been entrusted with this glorious gospel Let's give him the glory first, but then have the same kind of wonder that Paul seems to have as he concludes this letter. Look at what he's done. It should be on the tip of our tongue. It should be our heart song. This is the thing we want to talk about more than anything else is the glorious gospel. This is what he writes to Timothy, his disciple, 1 Timothy 1, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And then later in that letter, he says, now I entrust to you and you entrust it to faithful men who will entrust it to others. Pass it on. We have a doxology in our churches. It's one we don't sing like we used to. I've been to churches, though, that during, during the tithing moment or during a, a later moment, everybody stands. And this is probably why we don't do it, because one of the vision statements here, in case you knew, didn't know, it's come just as you are and be forever changed. We don't want people to come here and go, I don't understand what's going on in this place. Now, I admit some of you showed up and still had that experience. We're trying not to have that happen. But there's a joy in this doxology. There's a, such a rhythm. And a lot of churches you'll go to, all of a sudden, right at the end, everybody stands to their feet and sings together. And if you're not used to that, you're like, I don't know the thing. I don't know the things I'm supposed to do right now. Um, but I love the doxology. Here's, here's how it's sung. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye. Yeah, help me. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. I knew the words, but then I sang it wrong, and I, that hurt me. Um, I got to sing some more in a minute. I got to save it. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. This is something we, that the liturgical church has done for years. I have no, I have no issue with it at all. This, is, this really should be the scope of how we do ministry, that we, we end in such glory that the reason we... Do you know there's a reason we do church the way we do it, the way the church... The reason the churches have done this for, for millennia is because we're trying to follow a certain rhythm, that there's a glorious message from the Scriptures, but there's also this, this song, this worship that we give back it's all an offering and a sweet fragrance to Him. That's why we do it. Our individual redemption then, my friends, is a gift. The gift of the gospel. And it's not the final goal. The final goal is that we would glorify God. Will you give God glory through the gospel? I hope you got this today. Follow godly guidance. Avoid the troublemakers. Watch out for them. Offer heartfelt greetings. Remember one another. Those people you're shouldering work with, remember them, commend them. And then let's glorify God together. That's, we could get all of Romans in, in just one word if we got that part right. The church that glorifies God together and does it really well. I want to be that church. How about you? Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who is worthy of glory. 
that you are a God who loved us so much that you defeated death on our behalf. You are indeed the God of peace who crushed Satan and the evil one and, and death. You crushed it. And the way you did it was sacrifice. The way you did it was love for us. And we recognize as your church, Lord, that, and your people, Lord, that you're coming again. You're not done with this place. You're not done with your people. We're in this season of life where we're the church and we're supposed to be on fire. And we're supposed to be giving glory to the gospel. We know, we know in an eternal way you're not done. And you've got more work that you're going to accomplish in this place. But we, we hope now, God, that you would just, in us, help us to encourage one another. In us, help us to be the kind of church that, for lack of a better words, puts out the troublemakers. That we don't allow wolves in our midst. And when they show up, Lord, I pray you either redeem them or, or protect us from them. I do pray you would redeem them. God, if they're in our midst already, that you would help us to be the kind of church that could love them in spite of their disunity, that we could love them in spite of their struggles. But Lord, help protect us so that we would continue to be the church you set us to be. There's a reason you planted us here. There's a reason you brought these people in this place, Lord, and it's for a greater purpose. I pray you protect that mission and reach people throughout the city with us. Help us to give glory, not just on Sunday mornings, but that we would be true tomorrow. We would be yours Tuesday. We would be your vessels this week and for this life to come. Lord, help us to be yours, your people, giving you glory again and again. Lord, protect our church. Help us to be this type. The one that Paul commends here in the Roman church, the, the people that he's advising, help us to be like them, that we would imitate Christ in everything we do. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.